0: about this it's much like we've seen with Angela it's much like we've seen with Brooks Uh, Lamon is is somebody who's come in as an intern for a year just served in countless ways I've just you have just never you've always had such a servant heart and I appreciate that about you and uh, we've met we've gone through theological stuff read some of my books together and and just been really neat to see you just be a servant as an intern and then now here's a need and Jonathan said Jacob's the guy I want And so he's coming on just 10 hours a week, part-time staff, but it's a joy.
1: I just
0: want to say I am so thankful for this opportunity. I love this church so
1: much. and words just can describe how thankful I am to have opportunity to serve with Live and Hope.
0: Thank you, brother. Well, good to have you. All right, children that wish to go to Children's Church, you're dismissed out that exit right there. And uh, the rest of you, buckle your seatbelts. Sit back. Pretend you're in a courtroom today. Someone is on trial. There's going to be some witnesses, and we are going to reach a verdict. The judge has entered the room. All rise. Let's all rise for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John, toward the end of the New Testament. Notice as I read the passage in the ESV that I believe eight times the word testify or testimony is used. And it's the Greek word matureo, and it refers to one who testifies sometimes before a judge. So today's message is entitled, The Court is Now in Session. 1 John 5, beginning at verse 6. This is he who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. You don't want to do that. Let me just warn you you don't want to do that. If you don't have this testimony in you, then you're calling God a liar. That's a pretty serious offense. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. This is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, hallelujah. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, your word is amazing. There's no way a human alone could write this. (laughs) It is by divine authorship. So we affirm today that this is your inerrant, infallible, eternal word. I remember that verse in Isaiah, it says, This is the one to whom I will look, to him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at my word. Lord, we tremble at your word today. We respect your word. And may I preach it accurately and in the power of the Holy Spirit now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we'll answer the question today, who is on trial, who are these witnesses, and what is the verdict? First of all, let's go with who is on trial. Basically, Jesus and the gospel and salvation. If you remember that one of the purposes of the book of 1 John is that the apostle John, the beloved, is writing to counter false teachings that had arisen in the early church. One of those false teachings that's very significant for our discussion today is the false teaching called docetism. It comes from the Greek word which means to appear those there were some that were teaching that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh that he just appeared he was like some phantom like person that you kind of saw in the spirit but you he really didn't live for 33 years in a body and so Paul or John is is refuting that in some of this book and today you'll see how he does that but these false teachers had arisen and they had portrayed a Jesus that that wasn't really true. See, those that believed in docetism believed that all flesh was sinful and all spirit was good, so you can't have evil and good together. So there's no way that God could be a man because he'd have to be perfect and, and no perfect person could be in a sinful fleshly body. So that was the argument of docetism. Now, just as there were false teachings then... There are false teachings today, be not mistaken. Book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. So just as the Apostle John had to refute false teachings in the first century, it is still prevalent today. Churches that teach you have to be baptized to be saved. Churches that teach you can get saved by your good works. Churches that abandon biblical morality. Churches that, 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 that abandon biblical truth that the, the baby in the womb is an actual human being. Hello. Churches that endorse the the world's values and the world's beliefs. It's tragic today. Let this be a lesson to us that we must never abandon the truth of God and the truth of His Word. And so the first thing that we address today is the trial. Jesus and the gospel and salvation is on trial. And so who are the witnesses that are going to help us determine whether or not Jesus is truly who He says He was? Whether the gospel of Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Now today we have three obvious witnesses. They've already been uh, called by the lawyers. They, they're expected on the stand as we're in this courtroom today. But uh, there's going to be th- two other witnesses that are going to probably surprise you unless you studied this passage carefully before you came. Or you may have noticed it as I read it. But let's first examine these three obvious witnesses and the first and it says in verses seven and eight let's read let me read the verses seven and eight again for there are three that testify the spirit and the word and the blood there they are spirit word and blood and these three agree this is powerful (laughs) in the Old Testament it, it says that if you have two or more witnesses that was powerful in in the courts then and it is today if you were If a person was on trial today for robbing a bank, and we're in the courtroom, and the lawyer calls up a witness, Stephanie, did you see what happened? And Stephanie says, yes, sir, I did. I was there, I was in line, and there was a man that that, uh, took out a gun, and he handed a note to the teller, and basically, next thing I knew, she's handing him a bag of money. And the lawyer says, well, is that man in the courtroom? Yes, sir, he is. He's right over there. You sure that's him? Yes. How do you know? Well, I remember a scar on the left side of his face. They call up another witness, and this person says, "I was coming into the to the bank. I was going to make a deposit. This man went running out with a bag of money." Is that person in the courtroom? Yes, sir, he is. He's right over there. How do you know? Well, I just know by his height and his looks, and sure enough, just like Stephanie said, he has a scar on the left side of his face. Well, if that happens in a courtroom, that dude is toast. <laughs> He will be convicted. There's the power of an eyewitness account. This is why that book of Peter is so powerful, that passage where he says, We do not follow cleverly devised tales, when we were made known to you, the power and coming of the Lord, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The power of an eyewitness account. It's one of the things that Rich and I talk about a lot when we do the apologetic seminar. Evidence for the resurrection are eyewitness accounts. Over 500 people saw the risen Christ. So there's powerful evidence for Jesus being who he claimed to be. Well, here we have three obvious witnesses. First is the Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit a witness? Well, he's the third person of the Trinity. So he's fully qualified to witness today. (laughs) He's full of truth, it says here. He's not going to tell a lie because God cannot lie. He came on Jesus in power at his baptism. Through his power, Jesus did signs, wonders, miracles. And this testifies to his being fully God and fully man. He healed the sick. Hallelujah. He casted out demons. Still does it today. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the 5,000. He gave hearing to the deaf. He made the lame man walk. He raised Lazarus. He stopped the flow of blood in the woman. He forgave sin. All of this was in, through, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is on our witness stand today. And the Holy Spirit says, this man, Jesus... That is on trial today. He is the Son of God. He's the Redeemer. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's God in flesh. He's the head of the church. And he's coming back on a white horse to take his people home. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord because he has the name that is above every name, name above every name in heaven, earth, or under the earth. Now I say to you today, you can bow now or you can bow then. But if you wait to bow then, it may be too late for you. And then you will spend eternity separated from the one who created you and loved you and died for you. I suggest you bow now. Experience incredible life that he created you to experience so the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is who he claimed to be the second witness today is the water now this is less clear this has been debated by theologians for years I'm going to give you three possible ways to interpret water here and I'll tell you where I land but all three of these are true so it really doesn't matter But the first possibility of what it means that the water testifies of Jesus is that it refers to his physical human birth. The water of the womb, referring to his humanity, which would be one of the things that John is doing here to refute docetism. So in the context, it fits. Because it says that he didn't come just by the water, but also by the blood. And so the idea here is that it's bringing together his humanity and his deity. Furthermore, it would be consistent with the context of John, the author of this book. I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and see how John used water in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when he quotes Jesus about being born again. You see, when you interpret Scripture, listen closely. This is an important biblical principle of hermeneutics, or biblical interpretation. Context is the first principle of correct biblical interpretation. You look at the context. First, you look at the immediate context. Is there something in the actual context that tells you what it means? Don't just look at the verse, but look around it, what it says. Then you look at the broader context of the same author. How did John use water in other passages? So you're getting a little broader. Then you look at all of Scripture. So you begin with the immediate then you go to the intermediate, and then you go to the broader context. So let's look at how this same author, John, used water in John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Jesus said, I, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, which is exactly the two used in 1 John, those two are witnesses, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So verse 6 answers what water is referring to in verse 5. It's talking about physical birth. You're, you've be, you're born physically through the water of the womb of your mother. But you must be reborn spiritually in order to be a child of God. So we're all born physically in sin. And we, have, we, we, we receive the Adamic nature. But when you're born again, you get a new nature. And if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. So he answers what water means there. It's not water of baptism. It's water of the womb, fleshly, physical birth. So that's one possibility here, is that he's using it in the same way, again, to refute docetism, to say that Jesus did really come in the flesh. He's not just this phantom of existence. He literally came flesh and blood. God took on human nature. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Word became flesh through the water of the womb. Jesus was literally born to Mary. But he didn't receive a sin nature. He was divine. Okay, the second possibility is baptism. This water could refer to the baptism that Jesus received, at which point the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him to do the ministry he was going to do. And the Father at his baptism verbally spoke, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So that could be what this witness is, is referring to his physical baptism, at which point the Holy Spirit came on him in power for ministry, and the Father spoke of his acceptance and affirmation of Jesus. Third possibility is the water that came out of him when he was pierced at his death. This is the view St. Augustine took. So when a man was crucified in the first century, to speedily, to speed up the death, Because when you're on the cross, you have to lift yourself up to get air in your lungs. And if they wanted the person to die more quickly, they would break their legs so they couldn't lift themselves up. But when they came to Jesus, they perceived that he was already dead, and prophecy said not one of his bones would be broken. So they pierced him in the heart, and water and blood gushed out. This is a physiological condition that literally happens if a person's heart has bursted. So one could argue Jesus literally died of a broken heart. For you and me. But physiologically, water and blood, because water will develop around the sack of the heart once it is burst. And so a, a substance of water and blood came out. So it could refer to that. Which view do you take, Pastor David? Glad you asked. I believe view number one. I believe that water here is referring to his physical birth, refuting docetism and consistent with John's use of water in John three, five to six. But again, all of these others are true, so it's not that big of a deal. The third witness that appears on the stand today is the blood. Oh, I love this one. What a witness. The blood of Jesus testifying that he was God and he died for you and me. In the book of Leviticus, it says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. You can't be forgiven by God by any other means than blood. Well, what about my good works, pastor? doesn't matter a hill of beans your good works are like I won't say what the literal word in the Hebrew is but it's it's a dirty rag your good works and mine are a dirty rag before a holy God what about my baptism I was baptized as an infant doesn't that give me a ticket to heaven no it doesn't first of all infant baptism is not even biblical but it's certainly very unbiblical if you think that that will get you to heaven that was something done to you you didn't even, I don't even remember my infant baptism. I was raised Lutheran. I was a baby. I had no decision in the matter. How can that be related to salvation? You have to receive Christ by faith and repent of your sins to be born again. Well, well I've given a lot of money. I've helped a lot of people. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. How much clearer could it be? The only means whereby we can be forgiven is the blood of the Lord Jesus. Peter said, you're redeemed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. In the Old Testament there was this event called the Passover. God's people were in slavery in Egypt. And God's angel of death was about to come to that group of people, rightly so for their sin. He was going to judge the Egyptians, but he told his people, take the blood of a perfect Lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house stay in your house trust in that blood and when the angel of death comes he will pass over your house you won't get judgment you'll get my grace and mercy and in first corinthians chapter 5 christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed for us hallelujah if you apply the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your heart the angel of death will pass you over We deserve judgment, we deserve condemnation, we deserve hell for our sin. But when we put the blood over our heart, when we trust in the blood, then it will pass over us and instead of judgment, we get the righteousness of Jesus, hallelujah be to God. That's why it's called the good news. What do you say about that, Jerry? Amen. So the blood testifies today Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the answer. Jesus who we claim to be. The precious blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. So those are three witnesses that have appeared in our courtroom today. Now There's two more coming, so hold on. But before that, we must address an issue called a textual variant. Many of you may not even know what a textual variant is, but it's it's when there's a discrepancy as to whether or not a passage was in the original or not. You see, there's nowhere you can go today and get the original book of Matthew, the original book of Romans, the original book of 1 John. I believe that if God, I believe this is on purpose from God, because if there was an original, we'd probably worship it and make an idol of it. You know, we'd all flock to where that original is, and we want to rub ourselves against it, thinking there's some healing power. But what we do have are copies of copies of copies of copies that's what scribes did they didn't have xerox machines back then they didn't have cell phones and things that would immediately make an imprint of something so you had scribes their full-time job was to copy the book of matthew the book of rome the book of first john and they did it so meticulously if they made one mistake on that parchment they would have to just throw it away so they would just meticulously We have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. A manuscript is a copy. We have copies of copies of copies. There's no documents in all of human history that has more manuscripts than the Bible, and specifically the New Testament. And having studied Greek and Hebrew, I can tell you, you can trust your English Bible because the the translation into English is amazing. Now, the reason we have modern translations is because English changes, not the originals. (laughs) Not the Greek and Hebrew, that doesn't change, but we use words today that we didn't use in 1611 when the King James was translated, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. I have a niece named Charity, but we don't use charity for love like they did in 1611, so now we say faith, hope, and love. So, it's not changing any of the original, it's just putting it into language that we understand. When I say to you the original Greek word meant this, it's because that's what the New Testament was originally written in. So I'm just curious. I'm going to throw up a verse. I'm going to throw up verses 7 and 8 on the screen. And I'm just curious how many of you have a Bible that either in the main part of your Bible or as a footnote has this. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one." And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. How many of you either have that in your main text or it's in a footnote? About the same as first service, maybe a few less here. One of the things I love about good study Bibles is it's honest to say when there is what's called a textual variant. Usually these variants are very, very minor, like a difference between a singular and a plural. And in your, in your footnote, it'll say earlier manuscripts make this a plural, or earlier manuscripts say this word instead of that word. And they're very minor, because in some cases, we're not totally sure what the original was, because some manuscripts have variations. But again, they're very, very minor. This is actually one of the most significant variants in all of the New Testament. Now, the cool thing about it is this. If this is in the original, it's one of the most powerful supports for the trinity <laughs> i mean maybe second only to or maybe matthew 28 18 to 20 is second to this one where it says baptize him in the name of the father son and the holy spirit so there's nothing in this listen there's nothing in this that is inaccurate or unorthodox for if anything it's very orthodox i wish i could say today it was in the original and and and, and every bible should have it but i can't say that because it probably wasn't. And here's the evidence for that. It's not found in any Greek manuscript before the 15th century. You say, well, then how did it end up like in the King James Version or the New King James? Because it became part of the Latin Vulgate and the Catholic Church insisted that Erasmus, who wrote the Latin Vulgate, put it in his third edition. It wasn't in his first and second edition, but the Catholic Church insisted that it be in his third edition because it supported the Trinity so well and thus, it, it, it landed into the King James Version. But again, if you want a, a good, thorough treatment of this in about five paragraphs, go to gotquestions.org. It's a great website for questions like this. Or email me, and I'll send you all the, the data for this. But I can quote D.A. Carson today. I can quote the guy who wrote the King James Version debate book and some others. But almost every scholar now would say it probably wasn't in the original. Thus, you don't even find like my ESV, it's not even in the footnote which is interesting because usually they footnote stuff like that because they're so certain that it wasn't. Hope that helps. If I created some confusion, don't hesitate to email me and we can talk further. Now back to our witnesses, back to the courtroom. The first surprise witness is God. (laughs) Like we said earlier, testimonies are powerful. Here we have the testimony of God himself. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, okay, in court of law, like I gave the example of the bank robber, testimony of a person is pretty powerful. Those, that example I gave about two people, Stephanie being one, who saw the, the guy rob the bank, they're telling the truth, no question about it. The guy's in the courtroom, he's got a scar on the left side of his face. He's up for trial, blah, 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 blah. But sometimes man's testimony is not truthful. Sometimes you can't trust man. Man might skew the evidence or twist it to turn it to, to defend a friend or something like that. But here, what do we have here? The testimony of God is greater. Who would agree with me that the testimony of God is greater than man? Because we are not perfect, but he is. We will lie, but he never lies. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Titus 1, he cannot lie. You say, can God do all things? No. Wait, that's heresy. He cannot lie. (laughs) He cannot do anything contrary to his nature. So there are some things he cannot do. (laughs) For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. God Himself, Father God, on this Father's Day, appears in the courtroom. The lawyer begins to question him, and God the Father says, Yes, that's my son right over there. Oh, you see those prints in his hands and his wrist and his feet? That's my son. That's Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the one I said is in whom I am. Well pleased. I became flesh. In him he's the second member of the Trinity we co-created the universe he existed with me in all eternity and the word became flesh and dwelt among them and I used him and empowered him to do miracles signs and wonders and he died a cruel death at Calvary on the cross and shed his blood so that those people I created could be my children that's what God the Father says in the courtroom today what a testimony you can trust it. You can trust Him. Bearing witness to His Son. Now there's another surprise witness. Before I tell you who it is, and it's why it's a blank in your sermon notes today, let's look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Who's our fifth witness? huh? That's right. All of you who've been born again. If you have believed in Jesus, if you've been born again, if you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, if you're a child of the living God, you're on the witness stand today. We should be able to see in you that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I like the guy who once said, if you were convicted for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would your life show that he is real? Because we're all a witness. We're either a good one or a bad one. The way we live, by our thoughts, by our actions. We've learned that in 1 John, have we not? Evidence for a true believer. That's been the whole focus of this series. What is a true believer? What's a true Christian? Just somebody who claims they are? Votes a certain way? Has their name on a membership roster? No! True believer is a person who has a a personal relationship with Christ. They've repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ alone, and there's been evidence in a changed life. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. You say, I have faith, but there's no works. Your faith is no, nothing. Because faith without works is dead. We've learned in this book, have we not? Living hope, have we not learned in this book that a true follower of Christ is somebody, yes, at a point in time, Not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone, they have been born again, saved, imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. And proof of that is a changed life. Proof of that is a changed life. They love God. They want to follow God. They love his word. They love his people. When they sin, they quickly repent because they don't want to grieve the one who died for them. That's what a true believer looks like. We've learned that over and over and over. And here today, the fifth witness is you. It's you and me because we have the witness within us. This is consistent with Romans 8. The Spirit bears witness. Same word with our spirit, that we are children of God. And so what happens when you get born again, when you get truly saved by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone? God forgives you of all your sin, past, present, and future. He imputes to you the very righteousness of God. He gives you a new heart and a new spirit. That Holy Spirit who comes inside of you convinces you that you're a child of God. You have that Holy Spirit speaking to your spirit and convincing you and, and, and changing you from the inside out and giving you a new heart and a new desire. You want to follow him. That was the biggest change I experienced when I got saved. Is I wanted to follow God. I wanted to read his word. I wanted to be with his people because the Spirit of God was changing me. He can do the same for you. And so our fifth witness today is you and me when we've been truly saved. Our third section today is the verdict. After these five witnesses convene in a closed room, everybody expects it to take hours or days, and all of a sudden the judge is like, what, you've already reached a verdict? How, why so quickly? You've only been gone for a couple minutes. Have you reached a verdict? And the the jury says, yes, sir, we have, and we're in full agreement. (laughs) The Spirit, the water, the blood, the Father, and you all come back into the courtroom. Yes, sir, we've reached a verdict. Unanimous. No question about it. We are all in agreement. And here's the verdict. You can be certain of having eternal life in Jesus. (laughs) Because of who he is and what he did, and they all bear witness Verses 11 to 13 is the clearest passage in all of God's Word that you can have assurance of salvation. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know that word know in the Greek? It's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is, a, is an action in the past that has ongoing effects. What was the action in the past when you got saved? What's the ongoing effects? That you know that you know that you know that you know that you, know that you are saved. Listen, in first service today, I took the microphone out here to Kathy Hoyt. I'm telling you, you talk about something that will bless the heart of a pastor. She came to me Wednesday night in this room. She's 77 years old. She said, Pastor, for the first time in my life, and she got born again in her teenage years, for the first time in my life, I have the total assurance of my salvation. Last Sunday's message, something clicked. The light bulb came on. She saw something she had never seen before. She testified in first service today that for all of these years, she never felt she was good enough. She always felt condemned and shamed. She kind of knew that she was saved. She knew that, she, that God would be, was merciful and gracious and would forgive her, but the enemy just would always come in with these little eyes. You're not good enough. You may not be saved. You did this the last week. You must not really be a Christian. And that condemnation and that shame just harassed her. Last week, she got set free. Hallelujah be to God. 77 years old. Finally getting assurance of salvation. Don't wait that long. You can have it today. Let me conclude with this. In these last verses here, it says very simply, it's so clear, guys. So clear. He says, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have eternal life. Pretty clear, right? So how do you know if you have eternal life? You have the Son. Now what is eternal life? Let's get that first Oh, that just is going to heaven when you die. No. John 17 3, same John, who wrote this. John 17 3 defines eternal life. This is eternal life that you may know Him and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is having a personal relationship with Jesus. That begins the moment you're born again, and it just so happens He loves you and likes you so much, He wants it to last forever, so He gives you a place called heaven to spend eternity with Him. But eternal life begins the moment you're saved. So here, back to that verse. If you have the Son in your life, you've been born again, you have eternal life, period. He doesn't say if you have the Son, oh, and you live perfectly. None of us do. If you have the Son, and oh, you read the Bible every day, then you have eternal life. No. He says, plain and simple, one thing's required, you have the Son. If you have the Son, Jesus, in your life, you have eternal life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have eternal life. And then he says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The key is that word believe. What did we see last week? It doesn't mean going to church. It doesn't mean praying a sinner's prayer. It doesn't mean mere intellectual assent to facts. Satan does all that. It means to repent and to put your wholehearted faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation such that it leads to a changed life. That's what true biblical belief is. To repent, turn from your sin, put your wholehearted faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation such that you see a change in your life. That's biblical belief. And if you do that, then you can know that you know that you know that you have eternal life because God promised it in his word not based on feelings it's based on what god says in his word and god wants you all to have that assurance today whether you got saved years ago or you're not saved but you are going to get saved today (laughs) he wants you to have eternal life he wants you to have the assurance because when you have that assurance then you move forward knowing that you're adopted in his family you don't have to second guess anymore well who's my real father who are my real parents You know, once you're adopted and you know who your parents are that adopted you, (laughs) you move forward. You enjoy the relationship you have with them. You're thankful for what they've done for you. And that's what God wants for you because he wants to adopt you into his precious family. And that comes through faith in Christ alone. So if worship team would come out, let's all bow in prayer. I'd like our prayer team to take your spots. What I'm going to do now, I'd like the prayer team to be available, please, at both sides of the room. Because I'm going to call you now, anybody who has any doubt about the assurance of your standing with God. You have doubts about your assurance of salvation, but you want to settle it today. I'm going to encourage you to get out of your seat right now and go to somebody on the prayer team. And prayer team... You can use those side rooms if you need it. But we're not in any rush. We're going to give plenty of time for this. Because I do not want to quench what the Holy Spirit may want to do right now. Now, you can do this alone in your seat, and I'm going to lead in a prayer. But I encourage you with all my heart to do it with somebody. Because the Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you shall be saved. There's power in confessing with your mouth. There's power in praying with another person who can be a witness to your giving your heart and life to Christ and receiving Him today. And so I strongly encourage you right now to get out of your seat, go to one of these people, and settle it. Settle it today. So that when you leave here today, you have that assurance and that certainty that you have been forgiven and adopted into God's family. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to come to minister in this room. Those online, that many will get this settled today. They will not put this off. They will have the freedom and the joy that comes from knowing deep in their heart that they are a child of God, that their sins are forgiven. So if there's any doubt, you get up now. Go to somebody on the prayer team. Those watching online or those that just need a prayer in this room, I'm going to give you one. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's not some magical formula. But sometimes we need help in putting our, putting words to our faith. And so I encourage you now in your heart, those of you online, maybe out loud, to pray this. God, thank you for creating me and loving me. I acknowledge that I have violated your word and sinned against you, God. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for taking the judgment I deserve. Forgive me, God, of all my sins. come into my life I open the door I receive you as my forgiver and leader of my life fill and empower me with your Holy Spirit change me from the inside out Lord I give you my life I surrender. If you are born again, just a great chance to recommit, to reaffirm, to say, God, I surrender. God, I trust you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Have your will and way in my life. I trust and believe your word today. I'm going to move forward believing your word, not my feelings or circumstances. Thank you that I can know that I'm a child of yours because of all these testimonies and witnesses and because of the certainty of your holy word, which we trust today. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, anybody who is yet to be born again, that you would grant them faith and repentance by your grace and mercy and power. Lord, I pray for those today who have received you but they struggle with assurance. God, would you help something in their spirit click like it did for Kathy so they can leave with that assurance and peace and live for you in that confidence. Before we go into our final song, I'm going to invite all the fathers in the room to come up to the front. We have a special gift for you, but also Dustin Butler, our men's ministry coordinator, and I just want to pray a prayer over you, a prayer blessing. So let's all stand, but I'd like the fathers to just come up to the front, gather right here, and allow Dustin and I just to pray over you. I want to say we love you guys. We're proud of you guys. I know most of you. So proud of you. I know you have a heart for God. I know you want to be God's man in the home for your kids. Listen. Your children get their primary view of God from us as fathers. This is one of the most challenging things for me as a dad of four and a grandfather of three. Is when I think about, you know what, the way I treat them, the way I love them, the way I father is probably going to shape more than anything else their view of God. And I want to give them an accurate view of God. And so I want to say, I love you guys. Proud of you. So proud of you, man. I know your heart for God, that you want to live for Him. And you're here today. Hey, That's something to affirm, right? You could have done a lot of things today. You could have been out on the boat fishing, but you're here. You're in the house of the Lord. You're seeking God, and that's to be affirmed. So let's pray for these men. Would you agree with us, please? Dustin and I are going to team up here. Father, first of all, I just want to thank you for these men, and I want to pray for their walk with you, their relationship with you. I pray that you'd stir in them a passion for you, that they would be like David, a man after God's own heart. I pray they'd be men of steel and velvet, that they would be men of steel, men of conviction, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, but also tender and compassionate, and they can cry for the right things, and they'd be like David who could cry, but he was also defeated Goliath. God, I pray for those who are married in the name of Jesus. Pray for their marriages. God, that they would love their wives as Christ loves the church, that they would know their wife's love language and speak it on a regular basis that they would be humble and admit when they have failed. And God, I pray for their jobs. These men work hard. They have a lot of responsibilities. I pray blessings over their work. I pray you'd bless them financially, that they would be a provider that would bless their families but not make their families materialistic. (laughs) They would be generous. They'd be tithers. They would put you first in every area of their life.
1: Yes, Lord, I agree. And I just count it a privilege to do life with these men. Lord, a privilege to grow in a relationship with them and to journey alongside them in our pursuit of you. And I pray that these men would be men who go after you wholeheartedly. I think of Numbers 14, 24, where it said Caleb had a different spirit. He went after you wholeheartedly. And I pray that it would be true of these men. And as Pastor Holt mentioned earlier, Lord, I pray that it would be true that as people see these men, it would be clear that these men have been with you. I think of the disciples in Acts, when it said that they, when people saw them and they were untrained and ordinary, but it is clear that they had been with Jesus. And I pray that it'd be true of these men. And I pray for every aspect of their ministry, Lord. They have ministry on their, on their jobs. They have ministry in their home. They have ministry with friends and in their neighborhoods. And I just pray that you would bless their ministry that people would come to know you because of these men, that they would walk wholeheartedly with you because of these men, and that these men would be bold in their witness for you. And I just pray that generations of followers of you, Lord, would come from these men's lives. And I pray that it would start with their kids, Lord, as they parent their kids. For those that have kids, Lord, would they invest in them in every way, Lord, but especially and most importantly, spiritually and for eternity. I pray that you would bless the work of their hands as they point their kids to you, and that their kids would walk with you all the days of their lives. And for for those that have kids that may not be walking with you, we pray that they would come to know you and give their lives to you. And we just ask, Lord, that you would help these men to raise and disciple their kids in the same way, Lord, that you raise and disciple us. They would do it in imitation of you. So establish the work of their hands, draw them closer to you today. And I pray that these men would be men on mission, that we would know to be a church who are full of men that are men on mission, that aren't just sleepwalking through life but are going after you with everything that we've got and impacting the world around us. And we pray these things, Lord, would you help us and strengthen us to do this by your grace and with your power. Pray these things in your name.
0: Amen. All right, man, before you go, we have just a little token of love and appreciation. A mug, it says strong father, strong faith, strong families. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. So take one of these and be blessed. And as we go into a response time, prayer team, stay available, please. If anybody needs prayer or come to the altar and just pray alone and surrender your heart afresh to the Lord as we respond to what God has said to us today.